You're listening to Minding the Brain with Dr. Kim Hellemans and Dr. Jim Davies. Episode 23, Hallucinations. So when people think about hallucinations, they typically think of people who might have been taking hallucinogenic drugs or possibly having conditions such as schizophrenia, of which hallucinations are one of the diagnostic symptoms of certain forms of schizophrenia. But today on Minding the Brain, we're going to talk about hallucinations in other contexts, because uh, as we're going to discover, hallucinations can occur outside of either drug taking or conditions like schizophrenia. So is that correct, Jim? Uh, can you tell us a little bit about how, how hallucinations might occur outside of these contexts? Sure. Uh, schizophrenic hallucinations are probably the most vivid and interesting ones, but um, hallucinations can range from that kind of intensity all the way down to very simple, uh, even tinnitus, the ringing in your ears should be considered a kind of hallucination. So um, a lot of people uh, will experience hallucinations at some point in their life, even if there's nothing clinically wrong with them. Um, one statistic is that between about 4 and 15% of people who are uh, not patients of any mental disorder are going to hear a voice in their head, for example, at some point in their life. And what most people know about schizophrenia hallucinations um, come from a movie, A Beautiful Mind, where that's depicted as hallucinated people that are visual. There's a visual component. There's a paranoid component. There's an auditory component. But uh, as we'll see, they can be um, quite simple or quite complex. I like how you said, as you'll see, as we'll see, because actually no one's seeing anything, but they might be hallucination, <laughs> hallucinating our conversations, as you'll hear, right? As you'll hear. Uh, uh, before we get into that, I just want to clarify, you said, you know, about there's a certain population of non-clinical people will ha hear voices in their head. We all have an internal voice, right? So can you discriminate like our oh, own, yeah. you know, like... Yes, yeah, so we want to distinguish voices in the head from inner speech. So inner speech is, that's, thank you for bringing that up. So inner speech is when you're just sort of thinking in terms of words, um, or you might have, um, oh God, it, so it's, it's sort of a voice in your head, maybe like telling you that, oh, you're not, you're a failure or something like that. A lot of people have like negative self-talk. That's different from hallucination. A hallucination sounds distinctly um, auditory, uh, meaning it sounds very, very much like you're actually hearing it. So it's got vocal qualities. A lot of inner speech doesn't have, um, say, a gendered voice or a high or low volume or high or low pitch or anything like that. But hallucinated voices um, can be, they can sound like they're from a specific location in a room. Uh, they might sound like a particular person that you would be able to recognize. And so that's the, that's the difference there. Okay, good. That way, not not all our listeners are suddenly diagnosing themselves with uh, various forms of hallucinations. Thank you for uh, Kim's here to care for you, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then related to that, uh, certainly, you know, when we when we apply a cultural lens to the experience of hallucinations, is it not true that other cultures can sometimes interpret hallucinations as being generated outside the mind? Yes, we generally think now that hallucinations are kind of defined by uh, sensory-like experiences that are generated from our own memories and mental phenomenon rather than perception, which comes from the environment. But um, the mind is very mysterious, and lots of things that the mind could do 
were interpreted differently in the past and currently in other cultures. So many uh, people think that hallucinations are, rather than just like a trips, trip ups with the mind and how it works or whatever, that it's some kind of insight into the actual nature of reality or some kind of divine truth. Um, and some people have done some kind of retrospective diagnosis of religious figures and um, some of the things that people wrote about them and some of the things they wrote themselves. Uh, we can look back with some degree of confidence and say that they uh, were perhaps suffering from some uh, mental disorder that resulted in hallucinations, right? So um, people say Joan of Arc or St. Paul or somebody like that um, had certain kinds of mental illnesses that um, and their experiences with hallucinations were interpreted as religiously meaningful. So what you're saying is Joan of Arc may have actually hallucinated some of, you know, the, the directions about the coming opposition? Yes, because as we'll talk about, some of the, um, some hallucinations are, feel very, very important and very meaningful mm. and others, others do not feel meaningful at all, right? So if mm. it feels extremely meaningful, and then you talk about it with people with passion and people don't understand hallucinations, what sense are they to make of it? Um, so one interpretation is if you're in a religious context is that it's uh, some kind of revelation. Hmm. So that speaks to the nature of hallucinations in general. We tend to think of them as, as being purely sensory um, or perceptual in nature. And what I'm hearing is that's not the case. They seem to involve, to some extent, these meanings and beliefs that go along with the experience. So what's, what is the difference between a hallucination and a delusion? Yeah, that's, that, that gets um, a little bit dicey, and there's not a clear boundary. But if we were to characterize it, it would be that hallucinations tend to be sensory in character. So it's something seen or heard or smelled. <clears throat> and a delusion is more like a belief. So um, the, the, the sort of the stereotypical thing is um, somebody has a mental problem and believes that they are the second coming of Christ or something like that, or, or they've got uh, paranoid um, uh, delusions that they're being pursued by government agents or being monitored by aliens. And being mm, like uh, believing that the CIA is tapping your phone and listening to your conversations or something isn't particularly a sensory experience. It's not like they see a microphone that's not there. It's more of a attribution and an interpretation of a lot of ambiguous events. And that's that's how we sort of characterize it as a delusion. So delusions are like false beliefs and hallucinations are a little bit like false perceptions. Um, so delusions, but, yeah. delusions are more like, par like does paranoia relate to the delusions then? Paranoia sort of is a delusion, yeah. Yeah, right. so the sort of- Because it doesn't it, look like anything or sound, being paranoid doesn't yeah. I mean, you're seeing things differently, literally, in any kind of a, in your visual system or something like that. It's more like a, just a feeling that there's something off, but I, you know. I guess in common, both of them are the experience of something when it's not, either mm -hmm. like an over-enhancement of potentially a very uh, much more min minimal signal, either be it sensory or be it some kind of thought, and, and that the brain is attributing much more meaning. Uh, or enhancing that signal somewhere. That's yeah. Is that a good synthesis? <laughs> yes, and I mean, but what, the way you're describing it now sounds a lot like imagination too. <laughs> so <laughs> one of the ways that we distinct, because imagination, you imagine something, and that doesn't exist either, right? So right. Um, there's not a clear boundary between hallucination and imagination. But one of the characteristics of hallucination is that 
um, you lack insight. And that's not always true either, but insight is whether you uh, know that it's a hallucination or not. So if you have a hallucination and you believe that it's something in the world, it's more considered a hallucination. If you generate, like you imagine what a picture would like look like on your wall, but you understand that your imagery experience is generated by your mind and you're not, you don't suddenly think there, you don't believe that there's a picture on the wall, then that's better classified as imagination. Gotcha. So when somebody's imagining something, they're aware that they're creating that. Usually. Had, usually. <laughs> usually. But, but in a hallucination, they lack that insight. What about with drug use? Well, drugs are interesting because um, drugs can cause hallucinations that uh, sometimes have insight and sometimes don't. Hmm. Uh, so sometimes when you're under mm, the influence of hallucinogenic drugs, you will um, see perceptual distortions and maybe they'll just be entertaining. You'll be like, wow, look what, look at this crazy experience I'm having, you know, but you understand that it's the drug. Mm -hmm. uh, but you also hear about people who maybe if they're very, very high <laughs> or uh, in certain kinds of drugs, they uh, might end up believing what they actually see. And uh, so, yeah, th there's not a, a clear difference there with whether drugs uh, cause like not all drugs and not all drug experiences either have um, insight reliably or do not. Hmm. And what about Charles Bonnet syndrome? Can you okay. explain to our listeners what that is? Yeah, so so Charles Bonnet syndrome is an interesting one because the, um, it's 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 a it's a problem that people can sometimes get as they lose their vision. Okay, so as vision loss occurs, hmm. um, the mind you got. Okay, so one thing to understand is that your perceptual system is expecting a certain amount of information coming in. Okay, and as the information comes in, you uh, the mind is trying to predict what it's going to see next to make the whole thing more efficient. Anyway, if you're not getting that input, the expectation system can sort of take over, all right? So when people who lose their vision gradually over time, they might start hallucinating in the visual realm. And this is called Charles Bonnet syndrome. Mm -hmm. Now, what's neat about it is one, the hallucinations are completely visual. So there's no auditory component because they're not losing their hearing, they're just losing mm -hmm. their vision, right? Uh, and the other thing is that they um, might not have insight immediately, like they might see people walking in the room and think, hey, wh what are you doing here? But the, the hallucinations never interact with you and there's never any sound. So people just quickly figure out that it's a hallucination. So they gain insight relatively rapidly. Um, and, and one thing that differentiates the Charles Bonnet syndrome hallucinations from say those of uh, schizophrenia, is that schizophrenic hallucinations are drenched in meaning. They're very, they're often very mm -hmm. frightening, uh, but You'll see pe people with Charles Bonnet syndrome, they describe their hallucinations like they'll see text on a wall or they'll see people walking in weird costumes through the room, not interacting, not, not meaning, and it doesn't mean anything. And, and, and if you analyze the nature of the images in therapy, it goes nowhere. Hmm. I think it's a good time to sort of do a little bit of an education piece with some of our listeners because I feel uh, sometimes I make these assumptions about people's understanding of sensation and perception. Mm. Um, but much like my eight-year-old, when I ask her, Robin, where do you experience smell? She'll tell me it's in the brain only because she knows I've told her multiple <laughs> times that our perception of sensory events actually nice. occurs in the brain. So just a little sidebar on 
on the topic of sensory hallucinations, and what Jim's referring to is in, in vision loss, we have uh, visual information that comes in via our optic nerve, which is connected to, to a bunch of cells in the back of our eye or the retina. And the optic nerve then travels uh, into the brain via a couple um stops along the way, but it ends up uh, in a part of the brain known as the occipital cortex, which is the very back part of the brain, uh, populations of cells there that respond to visual stimulus. But that is where we see, right? If, if you... Um, if you damage certain parts of the visual uh, cortical regions, you have these kind of unique uh, alterations in, in, in our visual perception. So it's important to recognize that these hallucinations, particularly in, in Charles Bonnet syndrome, it occurs because in spite of not having the, uh, the software, which would be like our eyes uh, that are processing light energy, we still have the hardware, our brain, that is, like Jim was saying, expecting to receive visual information. So uh, that uh, those cells can still be firing uh, in absence of receiving any visual or light input, uh, hence that, that experience of a visual hallucination. Right. And, and if you put people in sensory deprivation, they will experience um, hallucinations similar to those found in Charles Bonnet syndrome. Right. So, so they've done completely, experiments yeah. where you put people in a room for days with, uh, with mittens on and uh, earplugs and you cover their mm-hmm. eyes with ping pong balls. Um, they will they'll start hallucinating after a while. And interestingly, the hallucinations track the visual system's uh, levels of progression. So they'll start visual, they'll start hallucinating little lines and colors. And then um, if they're there for a couple of days, they might end up hallucinating like full cartoonish figures or whatever. But cool. it, it kind of follows the progression of visual perception. Yeah, well, we'll talk about neat. sensory deprivation a little later on because I want to know more about this. But um, so back to like just, they do. there do seem to be very, many different forms and kinds of hallucinations and you know for example hearing ringing in your ears right which as a neuroscientist i know and i remember learning this in undergrad is is due to just literally cells that are um uh responsive to sound that are firing in absence of a of a sound Mm -hmm. stimulus but that seems quite a bit different than something like a an lsd or acid trip yeah, um, and and it also shows like the tinnitus example, which is the ringing in the ears. That shows that yeah. not all of your hallucinations come from memory, right? If you right. have, you might have an external stimulation. Uh, you might have some misfiring of neurons, or as we'll talk about, a seizure or something. And you might hallucinate very simple things like a ringing, or if it's the visual system, you might see like zigzag patterns or something like that. And you're not retrieving a memory and mistaking it for reality, which is. As what the way some hallucinations work. Um, it's just more of a, a low-down thing. But if we talk about the experience of hallucinations, I like to compare it, maybe it's because I have a PhD in computer science, but I like to compare it to different technologies. And so some hallucinations are a little bit like a heads-up display. And this is like a, um, um, if, you, if the listeners plays video games, they might know that like if you're navigating around an environment, there might be some static information bars that are on the screen no matter where you look. So your health bar or something at the bottom. Or if you watch the Terminator movies, when the Terminator looks around, there's um, different kinds of information that sort of follows your eyes, meaning you can't look away from it. Anywhere your eyes go, they're there. So if you've ever gotten up too quickly and seen spots in the periphery of your vision, you can't look away from the spots. Mm. You can't look directly at the spots. They're always in the same part of your uh, retina, so to speak. And 
Um, that's common for things like migraine auras and um, some other kinds. And if we move up in complexity, we can have things that are sort of related to augmented reality. And augmented reality technology is when you've got, you can see the real world, but like a computer system is, is putting information on top of it, right? And a lot of LSD hallucinations are like this, uh, where you might have perceptual distortions. So you're looking at someone's face, and the face changes color, or their eyes suddenly look too big, or something like that. It's altering your perceptions, but it might not necessarily be um, adding a whole lot. Uh, or it might, right? So you might hallucinate a person sitting in your couch, but unlike the migraine auras, if you look away from the couch, you don't keep seeing the person. You look back, there's the person. You look away, the person's gone. That's kind of like uh, adding to the environment, right? And then the most complex is more like virtual reality, where you're you're basically replacing the entire sensory input with the hallucination. Uh, people are most familiar with this experience in dreaming. So we don't normally consider dreaming a form of hallucination for reasons that perhaps aren't justified, but um, sometimes hallucinations will completely take over your entire experience. This is in very severe uh, temporal lobe epilepsy hallucinations. Uh, sometimes uh, post-traumatic stress disorder flashbacks can be like this, um, mm. and also certain drugs. So DMT, which is the active ingredient of ayahuasca, has what I call like a full immersion hallucination. And in fact, people who choose to partake in this drug will often opt to be in a dark room with their eyes shut because otherwise they'll get interference. Oh they'll yeah. see two worlds at once, and, and they don't like that, you know? So. Wow. Yeah, this is all fascinating. So it sounds like there are many different ways in which hallucinations can happen. Can you kind of talk us through all the different ways? Um, mm -hmm. I can think of a few, but... Yeah, well, some we've uh, talked about a little bit. One is uh, some. there's too much activity in your sensory areas. This is common with like a seizure. Um, uh, this happens with migraine auras. You can also stimulate the brain directly with electronic equipment and generate um, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. In fact, rubbing your eyes and getting and seeing stars because you rub your eyes is a very low-level mm, mm -hmm. overactivity kind of hallucination. Um, and what's cool about this is that we now we're able to track where the seizure is, and we can see that the nature of the hallucination in these brain areas makes sense given where the seizure is happening. Your experience matches it. So if you're getting a seizure in the part of your brain that is the edge detector, for example, where you can see the edges of objects, you will see lines and you'll see edges. And then the seizure might move to a, a, a contiguous, like a nearby part of the brain that processes something else. And suddenly you're hallucinating a different thing. Uh, so that's kind of cool that we've seen that kind of thing. Yeah, and I, I've heard uh, if you take individuals who are experiencing schizophrenia and uh, experiencing hallucinations and you put them through something like a PET scanner, which is a type of neuroimaging technique that sees, that allows you to visualize activity of cells, they actually have enhanced activity of auditory neurons when they're experiencing auditory hallucinations in the absence of having auditory input. So the their, their cells are firing in the mm -hmm. absence of that sensory input, which says they're very real, right? These experiences are real. Um, 
And what's cool, you were mentioning temporal lobe epilepsy, uh, which is literally called temporal lobe epilepsy because it's due to abnormal firing of cells in a region of the brain that is the temporal lobe or the, or the part right in behind our temples. And one of the common experiences that individuals who have temporal lobe epilepsy is they'll have this in, this very uh, distinct sense of deja vu, almost the that um, is like experienced like an aura and during the epileptic event. Uh, and that's neat because the temporal lobe has a bunch of structures in it that are responsible for memory. So mm. if you're having this aberrant activity of these cells that are normally linked to long-term memories, in the absence of actually internally generating that memory, you can feel the sense of deja vu. So it does sound like, again, where the... Um, where the neurons are firing relates to that hallucination event, right? Right, and deja vu is is a neat example of a delusion in a way because uh, yeah. it, the feeling of familiarity mm-hmm. can be triggered independent of being even feeling familiar about anything at all. Like you can just have a feeling of familiarity right. not directed to anything, and deja vu is like uh, it's not necessarily um, a sensory thing. It's just a um, an attribution to the sensory experience that has happened before. Yes. Well, I always get students asking me, what is deja vu? Uh, they, they, well, do you want to make... tell us? Well, I know a little bit about it, and you would probably be able to speak more because you uh, it relates to like the kinds of modeling that you can do in terms of computational neuroscience with memory uh, have demonstrated quite nicely that deja vu is is often experienced when you see or hear, like it's a sensory event, a st- stimulus that resembles something that you've already experienced. So say, for example, you walk down the street and you see somebody walk by and you have this intense feeling of deja vu, like I know that person. Uh, It may well be that that person has a nose that is similar to somebody else you know. And what's happening in the brain is it's detecting that feature, it's doing a feature detection and picking up a shape and size of a nose uh, and the color. And and what it's doing is it's the populations of cells that are firing saying that's familiar enough to feel like it's probably somebody mm. you know, right? So you can overlay that into a- any uh, typical example of even being in a, in, a, in a familiar environment or a familiar smell. That's, you know, when you have multimodal sensory uh, perception, right? So you have familiar smell and a, and a space and a, and a person, it can really emphasize the sense of, right. of deja vu. Yeah, so, yeah. So another, another way that you can have a hallucination is by having too little sensory activity, right? So if you're in sensory deprivation, you'll often uh, hallucinate. And w- about 50% of people who lose um, like a, a longtime spouse or something, they will have what are called bereavement hallucinations, where they'll hear or see um, their, their dead spouse. And this is interesting because it's not sensory deprivation in the sense that they're locked in a room with their eyes shut, but it's like um, it is a kind of a social deprivation. You're so used to seeing the person around that the lack of that kind of stimulus, your expectation system pushes down into the sensory areas and, and generates a bereavement hallucination. Can I just interject here? It's fascinating that you say this because I, f- some for many many years, well for for m- many months after I had my my kids when they were little, I always had them in a car seat in the back of the car, and I obviously couldn't see them because I was facing forward, mm. and. When I wasn't driving with them, I felt this distinct weirdness of like they should be like it was very much almost a hallucination of uh, 
feeling like my kids were there, but they weren't. It, right, it was right. very hard to explain that, but it went away once the kids got older. But certainly when they were babies, I, I definitely was conscious of their presence and conscious of their absence, which felt like they were there. I don't know yeah. how to explain that. I yeah. bet that's the, I think it's probably the same thing as a bereavement hallucination. Yeah. But like, especially because as a parent, you're driving, you're very conscious of your mm-hmm. that your kids are there and you're, it's occupying your attention um, and you can't see them. So when you still can't see them, but they're not there, that attentional habit is still going on. So right. I, I bet that's yeah. going on. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. there you go. And then um, what that's about other... Th- well, that's also related. I want to say that's also related to this third man uh, thing. So when people go on long hikes with maybe just like one other person, they'll often, both people will think that there's some third, they'll have a feeling that there's a third person with them, although like just sort of behind them or or whatever. So those are all kinds of like uh, social deprivation. There's a whole book written about that, right? The third there's man? really. Yeah, my husband read it, and it was re- it's quite fascinating. Apparently, um, Shackleton, mm-hmm. when he was up exploring uh, the Arctic, uh, wrote reports of having right. this 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 other the third man following him around. I think it was right. him, but yeah, pretty pretty cool. Now, phantom limb is also kind of a, uh, a too little input thing. Phantom limb is when you have a limb removed and you still feel like the limb is there. Uh, but the current theory on that is kind of interesting is that you've got a body image in your head, mm-hmm. what your arms are like, what your legs are like, and you've got this body image, and most of the time it just happens to correspond with your actual body. But when you lose a limb, the body image is still there. So it's actually not the addition of a hallucination of feeling the arm. It's that the, that the mm. arm body model is still around even though you've lost. So it becomes a hallucination only because the limb is gone. <laughs> right. It's um, like losing your vision. Same, right. The same concept as like Charles Bonnet syndrome, yes, that you yes. have all this hardware that's still, like you said, it's expecting to detect in input. And the absence of that input, either visual or sensory yeah. or tactile, produces that. Mm-hmm. And what about otoscopy? Uh, otoscopy is oh. when you see yourself. So. Sometimes this happens in medical conditions where you, fi- you you have an experience of floating above your body, looking down on it. Uh, but interestingly, they're all different kinds. So you can, and, and this gets attributed to religious people or uh, people who believe in the paranormal as an astral projection or out-of-body experience. Uh, but it is a hallucination. It only tends to happen when your body is not moving. We're not really sure why. But sometimes you see yourself like lying down, but you but the you is associated with the projection. Sometimes you see a copy of yourself in the room, but you identify with the original body of you. And then sometimes you can't tell the difference. So sometimes you see a version of you, but you don't, you're not sure which one's you seeing the other one. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. but, that's, but that seems to be a sensory deprivation thing with regard to uh, where bodily position, uh, what we call proprioception in the sensory world, whereby if you're not getting a lot of input, um, you are more likely to have that. In fact, they've done studies, people who are more in touch with their bodies, dancers, athletes, have far fewer out-of-body experiences. Hmm. And people in wheelchairs, people who are bedridden or something, they'll have more of them. So that's probably a sensory deprivation hallucination. That's wild. When I was in grad school, I participated in an experiment um, in Susan Liederman's lab. Susan Liederman is a brilliant, 
perceptual scientist who uh, is a, was actually incidentally the person who helped design the the new um, bills for the blind. Anyway, her her grad student was doing this experiment, where, which what it required was. Uh, her creating an actual mask of my face. So she covered it in plaster and created this mask. And uh, when she popped out the mask and had me look at it, I had the most bizarre sensation. Uh, I could not rectify seeing myself outside of my body. So I was like, it's my sister. You've created a mask of my sister. That was how my, my brain was able to rectify seeing this very clear representation of my face outside of my body was quite odd. Yeah, this happens, um, this happens a lot. Like you'll have a, a hallucination or some kind of experience and then your mind will quickly come to some conclusion about what it must have been and believe it. So with the deja vu, a lot of people, they attribute it to a dream. So, well, I, I, this feels very familiar. The only available explanation is that I dreamed it. So they say, mm. oh, I dreamed about this. But usually they've never mentioned or thought about the dream before. It's just a conclusion they're drawing. They don't even realize they're doing it. We are rational humans. So tell us about, uh, so drugs are obviously another way in which we can hallucinate, right? Yeah. So drugs, lots of drugs like um, hashish and mushrooms, artane and DMT, they cause hallucinations. And one of the things that characterizes these kind of hallucinations are that they are, they tend to be pleasant and uh, often meaningful. And when I say pleasant, I mean, people wouldn't take the drugs if it was just unpleasant most of the time. Um, and they also can sometimes feel very meaningful. So um, there've been lots of, um, I shouldn't say lots, but some very interesting studies about using hallucinogens in the context of meaningful stimuli, like a, a sermon or some kind of a religious passage. And people can, they seem to have long lasting uh, positive effects, and that's partially because the nature of the high and everything else makes thing make things feel very personally meaningful. So, do you know the neuroscience of hallucinogens? Not as well as you do, Kim. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, it, that we don't fully understand. Of course, um, there's a lot of theories, but one of the theories that I think is is quite fascinating and holds a lot of weight is uh, the notion that most hallucinogens interfere with um, processing in a region of our brain called the thalamus. And the thalamus is, is interesting because it's the, the first part of the brain that most sensory input arrives from the periphery. So the optic nerve, the auditory nerve, uh, most uh, the, the facial nerves, the tactile nerves, somatosensory, I should say, come into the brain and hit the thalamus first before the thalamus is considered like a relay station. Uh, and once it receives that input, it then sends it off to the appropriate cortical location for it to be processed and uh, hit our conscious awareness. And one belief is that when we take hallucinogens, they interfere with the processing of the thalamus such that uh, some of those cell populations become overactive and some become underactive. So that's how we might experience mm. like microscopia or macroscopia, which is common in mushrooms, like th looking at things and seeing them as larger than life, like a la Alice in Wonderland, right? Um, so it is something about this this altered, altered processing that gives us sensory events when they aren't actually there or, so, or distorted so the, versions of them. Does the sensory information simultaneously go to the thalamus and the sensory areas? Or uh, yes, it... It, it happens in parallel. Oh, okay. So mm -hmm. so you'll see a red ball mm -hmm. and you'll experience it in your visual areas, but mm -hmm. also the thalamus is like, okay, which cortical areas need to see this and know about mm -hmm. it? 
Okay, yeah. cool. Parallel processing. Yeah. So what what are other ways in which uh, one, one is another one's dream intrusion, and this one's uh, most people have this at some point in their lives while you're going to sleep or waking up, you might have a hallucination. Somebody saying your name, a mm. knock on the door. Um, I have these periodically. It's it's no big deal, but it's thought to be dream intrusion, which just means that you are rapidly entering a dream state, but you're not fully asleep yet. So um, it's thought to be just a bit of a, a dream. Uh, something called the hypnagogic jerk, <laughs> which is a great name for um, when you're falling asleep, usually um, you might have a semi-dream of walking and tripping on something or something like that, and your whole body will jerk in the bed uh, because the... Um, um, th the system that cuts off your uh, muscle activity hasn't fully gotten in place yet. So um, you, you, your, your body moves uh, in response to something that's happening in a dream state. So that's one way to do it. Yeah, I've heard some people experience very terrifying hallucinations, these hypnogogic and hypnopompic hallucinations, either as they're mm -hmm. usually typically as they're falling asleep to the point where they feel like there's like an evil presence in the room or they feel like something's literally sitting on their chest. And a lot of cultures have very different names for this. For example, in Newfoundland, it's called being visited by the old hag. And some people, it's so terrifying that it actually is, is a diagnostic criteria for a number of sleep disorders, in, or a couple sleep disorders in the DSM-5, uh, the Bible of, of clinical disorders, such that people like really, they don't want to sleep because they, right. they, are, they fear experiencing these malevolent um, beings as they're right. falling asleep. And our, and our listeners can go back to our Aliens episode and mm -hmm. see how sleep paralysis all, uh, also is part of the explanation for why people believe in uh, alien abduction. There um, you go. So another, another interesting way that hallucinations can happen is with something uh, that we think of as problems with the inhibition system. So your, your brain, at a very broad level, is a bunch of neurons exciting or inhibiting other neurons. <laughs> so um, well, oh, Kim's rolling her eyes a little bit. So uh, <laughs> maybe that's my non-neuroscientist way of looking at it. But um, Come on, you're a computer scientist. Circuit, circuit. Yeah. So yeah. So neurons will activate, or or they'll make a, a another the next neuron more likely or less likely to activate. That's a lot of what they do. Let's put it that way. Kim's nodding at that, so we're going to go with that. Um, and <laughs> so inhibition at a at a little bit of a higher level is when your um, mind is trying to interpret what's happening, and when uh, a certain interpretation of events is less likely. Um, it inhibits the uh, recognition of those things. So, for example, if you see grass, um, but you are in a mall, um, the fact that you're in a mall will inhibit the interpretation that it's actually grass and make it more likely that it's artificial grass, for example. Anyway, at a very simple level, uh, when you smell um, something fruity, you expect fruit and you expect the taste of fruit and this can get out of whack when you smell like shampoo that's strawberry flavor but you taste it and then it's like it's just soap right so your mind uh, the smell of fruit activates the like the sensations of fruit anyway if this is messed up we can get problems so let's just say that um, you are uh, looking at grass, you expect the color green and if you see green when you step outside you're expecting grass and that kind of um, we call it priming, makes your perceptual system efficient. But what we don't want is that the green primes grass and grass primes green, and you get sort of a runaway effect, right? So this, is, uh, this can be really bad because 
if you just see green, you might hallucinate grass if the inhibition is a little bit out of whack. So that's a, now this I want to say there's no scientific, or I, I should say there's no behavioral or neuroscience evidence of this. This is all from neural modeling ideas. So this is still somewhat speculative, and we haven't figured that out. Completely. I was going to say, is there? Uh, I was wondering if there was data showing that this actually happens in things like schizophrenia, or is yeah, it just... um, there's. I don't think that we have psychological or neuroscience evidence of it yet. But it, it's one of these things that sort of follows from what we already know about how the system works. Like we know that in an associative network, everything sort of activates everything else. But we also know that. If if everything just continually activates everything else, everything will be maximally activated. So there's got to be some breaking system, right? Well, it kind of makes sense. I mean, like one of the theories of uh, in schizophrenia is that you, you have excess dopaminergic activity in some brain regions and too little in others, and that dopamine normally gives things meaning. Uh, so you you ascribe meaning to things that you know. Every once in a while, we have these kind of like wacky thoughts, like oh, I'm being followed, or like, you know, somebody's listening to me. But our, you know, for most of us, we're like, nah, that, that can't be, and we don't think about it. But in people who are prone to schizophrenia, they have too much activity in those brain regions, which could be a failure of inhibition, right? And that they're they're con they're allowing for these diluted thoughts or hallucinations in, in the absence of having the system to, to shut them down. So, you know. Right. So, so if you have a, a slight paranoid feeling and yeah. then you look around and somebody in the crowd is looking at you, yeah, yeah. then it's more evidence of the paranoia, right. which feeds the mm -hmm. looking and, and you start mm -hmm. interpreting things differently. Yeah. There you go. We can also retrieve memories and not know that we're retrieving them. Okay. What? So, this, yeah, so when I ask some, if you, I ask you to just imagine the sound of like your mother's voice or something, you can imagine your mother's voice and maybe you can, if you have good auditory imagery, you can imagine the voice quality and think about how fast she speaks or whatever. But because you know that you're retrieving a memory, mm -hmm. you don't confuse that auditory experience with hearing the voice in real life. But if you have problems with um, insight, and um, we're going to get back to this with the uh, a little later with forward modeling, um, so there there is evidence that sometimes voices in the head is actually memory retrieval without insight. So you don't know that you're retrieving a memory when you are. Uh, I get right? it. Because get a lot it. of voices in the head, and this is this is a little bit. I mean, Gregory Shankland, who we uh, in the voices in the head episode I interviewed, his experience is completely wacky. Um, but for most people, <laughs> um, voices in the head, a lot of the things that the voices actually say are things that the patient remembers hearing mm. at some time in the past. Right? Is there a neural basis for insight? You know, like where do Not we that experience? I know of. Because it, lack of insight is actually one of the diagnostic. Um, Symptoms mm. of hoarding disorder. So, like they lack insight into what? Uh, like, well, you can be rated on insight, and people who have very poor insight into the fact that they are actually hoarding stuff and that it's at, they're at risk of being smothered, for example. Like they don't, you know, people who don't recognize like how bad their house actually is is like is is clinically predictive of them not doing as well with treatment. Sounds uh, relevant to addiction too, like people don't Yeah, right. That so the, it makes me wonder like where where insight is in the brain. But that's a detraction. Maybe we'll do a whole thing on that. Well, I, I mean insight, I think but I, I expect it, that it's quite complicated because 
insight is often the result of a reasoning process that might involve mm. many, many brain areas mm-hmm. and, and functions because it's about reasoning and this doesn't make yeah. sense. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that's and that's a complicated. It's got to be cortical. That's my guess. Got to be cortical. It's got to be cortical. <laughs> All right. <laughs> that's, that's what your lectures are going to be like <laughs> when you're 65. My... It's got to be cortical, kids. <laughs> I see you sound like that comedian. What's that guy? You know Gil- that guy? Gilbert Godfrey, <laughs> yeah. I think you're thinking of. Yeah, there we go. All so, right, other ways. Yes, other ways. Let's, vivid is- imagination. So some people have such vivid imagery that they can uh, sometimes confuse reality with what they're imagining. Now, most people have, most people with decent imagery experience something we call the perky effect where you're you vividly imagine something, it can somewhat interfere with your perception. Like if you imagine a color, but you're trying to identify a color on a screen at the same time, the imagination can in- in interfere with performance. Um, but people who are hyperphantasic, which is that they have extraordinarily vivid imagery, hmm. it can be so vivid that sometimes they can mistake it for reality. And in fact, people who have um, really, really vivid imagery have more false memories because hmm. the vividness of a memory is one of the cues we have to determine whether it actually whether it happened in our past so something that they imagine in the future they might falsely remember that as as an event that's i but had even, no idea you could have hyperphantasia i knew you could have aphantasia i just found yeah. out about this folks if you didn't know that there are people who don't have a mind's eye right, right. you know when you imagine uh your day or you you imagine your mother's face or whatever there's people who don't do this and what you're saying to me is there's people who are even higher on that well, the, Hyper- the, af- the aphantasia, hyperphantasia is really a spectrum of vividness in imagery. Huh. So there are people who have very low, low vividness and those who have no experience of imagery at all, we call aphantasic or aphantasic. And then, yeah, but at the other extreme, it's, it's hyper, right? And that's, and that's actually um, not always every sense is affected. So I have mm-hmm. a friend who has no, she's aphantasic with vision, but not with audition. So hmm. she's actually a philosopher of music. So she can't see things in her head, but she can hear. Um, wow. She can hear songs and whatever. She can vividly image songs, like when you get a jingle stuck in your head. But then I have other. I have another friend who's aphantasic who has no visual imagery, no auditory imagery, not even in dreams. Huh. And so, you know what else is yeah. cool is that people who are experiencing a manic episode have heightened sensory perception. So they must have very heightened, vivid, 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 I keep saying. No, no? not necessarily. Like mm. uh, your perceptual abilities and your imagery abilities, I don't mm. think are particularly correlated. Oh, okay. Which is Ignore weird. that. Strike that from the record. I but even normal, But even people who are have normal imagery, uh, one really weird study basically turned imagination into imagery they, or into hallucination. They said, imagine you're hearing the song White Christmas like played in the next room and they mm. just sat there and imagined it and like I think like 5% or I'm bad at remembering numbers but some some statistically <laughs> significant percentage of people ended up believing that it was actually being played in the next room. What? Which just you know it just shows that you know there's this like insight and, and the imagery uh, mm. uses a lot of the same mental machinery and brain machinery as perception and sometimes you can just get fooled. Hmm. All right, folks, we are like, if you're up, if you're counting with us, we're now at seven different ways in which we can hallucinate. So let's, I think, I think, I think <laughs> there's more. Two, Jim, are more. there more? Yes, yes. there's two, so one, two more. One is, um, one explains something called the alien hand syndrome. So this is where 
uh, I think it was made famous in Dr. Strangelove, um, but it's when your body does something, but you don't attribute your own agency to it. So you think that your hand is moving on its own, uh, or you might, again, interpret it as being controlled by the government or, or some engineer. Um, and the, here's how, how that happens is um, really interesting because it forces you to think about how the brain makes sense of things. So your motor system comes up with these plans. I'm going to reach for this jar of peanut butter. And so you reach for the jar of peanut butter. Now what happens is it sends something. It sends a message to the sensory systems telling it to expect that you're going to feel a jar of peanut butter in your hand. Okay, This is um, goes by a couple names, but basically when you feel the, the, the your tactile system, your haptic system feels that jar of peanut butter, it's not a surprise, right? If you're just sitting there and suddenly a jar of peanut butter appeared in your hand, you'd be surprised by it, right? So hmm. it sends a message and then the perception system's like, all right, gotcha, it's coming, and then it feels it. If that, if there's a problem with that, if the message doesn't get sent, it doesn't arrive, it's distorted, it's late, anything like that, then you'll be surprised by the per by the perception. And one conclusion that can be drawn is that you didn't cause your hand to move at all, right? And they've done this with normal people. So there's a study that shows you can't tickle yourself, which mm. is weird to me because I have no trouble tickling myself on the bottom of my foot. But anyway, for most people, you can't tickle yourself. And the theory is that because you know that you are doing the tickling, it doesn't trigger this um, sort of fear response. Anyway, they did this cool experiment where they set up an apparatus where you move a stick that had a little foam finger and it would tickle your foot. And if you were controlling the stick directly, you couldn't tickle yourself. But they made it so that they could add a little bit of a delay. And the more delay they added, the more hmm. it tickled because it was it was um, showing that, or, or the per people were interpreting it as not them doing it because them. the time, yeah, because yeah. the time didn't make any sense. So um, that's you know that's a little bit more evidence of the, of how this works. So if you're if you're now this might work with memory retrieval too. If you're retrieving a memory, and it's going to get imaged in your visual system, but there's no message sent to the visual system. Hey, image coming in. Hmm. Then your then your visual system might be like, hey, I must be looking at it. Right. Hmm. So this this also might be related to how memory retrieval might get mixed up with uh, hallucinations. Wild. Last one we're going to talk about is synesthesia. Synesthesia is when it's it's hard to define, but it's sort of a mixing of the senses. So people might um, feel the tastes. So they might say, "Oh, this chicken is too pointy," or they might see colors around um, as halos around numbers or something like that. Uh, and some of these have nice and tidy brain explanations, like uh, you know how your brain is wrinkly. Well, one of the wrinkles for thinking about numbers is sort of flat up against the wrinkle uh, or the uh, the gyrus, I guess we call it, uh, yes, for, the gyrus. for color. And so, you know, a very common one is number color synesthesia. So there's a sort of a tidy brain explanation for that. But many of them, um, there's, there's none. So this is sort of a hallucination because people will actually experience, say, a glow of red around the number eight every time they see the number eight. Uh, so it is, it is technically hallucination, but usually they have insight. They know that it's a... Hmm. It's just a part, just a function of their mind. But synesthesia is one of these cool things where nobody who has synesthesia seems to mind. So is it a disorder? Well, kind of, but it, it's it's more often called a condition because um, they they actually have better memory. 
Um, and it's usually, it's kind of fun to have Ex- synesthesia. Except for the woman in, on Oprah who couldn't even say one of her friend's names because it conjured up the um, taste of garbage or the smell of garbage. I can't remember yes. which taste or smell. So there I are didn't some hear that story. Who, yes, there are. Yeah, and I have a friend who has pain when he sees corners. Oh. And it really interferes with his life. He has to that, like clip really? paper and... Yeah, he exper- he and he can't get a doctor to like take him seriously. They're always like, "Well, how do you feel about that? How does it make you feel?" But basically, he has pain when he sees corners, and it, and it interferes with his life. Wow, that's almost like an expectation, like a corner, a sharp corner might hurt you. So it's almost like an, you know what I mean? Like when we- it could be. I mean, it could be mm. because those are semantically related. But with if this yeah. is a if this is a form of synesthesia, and nobody knows if it is because this is the only case I've ever heard of it. Pain synesthetics, synesthesia. Synest- yeah, mm. synesthetics don't agree on. The associations. So, two people with number color synesthesia don't have the same. Hmm. Like eight isn't eight might be red for one and blue for another one. My dad has day of the week color synesthesia. Your dad does. Yeah. So he like Wednesday is brown. Or I don't remember whatever. But he told me this and I wrote it down and then I put in my calendar for a year later when it was Christmas. I was going to be with him again to quiz him on it and he got he got all the colors exactly right. So it's certainly a persistent a persistent thing. Folks, if you've never heard of synesthesia, it's pretty cool. And we'll have some links on uh, how there's some neat tests for synesthesia that we can put on our mindingthebrainpodcast.com website. But on the topic of hallucinations, Jim, is there anything that we can direct our listeners to finding out more? Oh, so glad you asked, Kim, because I just, my book just came out. No way. I had no idea. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my book uh, in 19, this is uh, 2019 recorded, um, Imagination, the Science of Your Mind's Greatest Power. It is about imagination, and each chapter is about a different kind of imagination and different form, and there's a whole chapter on hallucination. Fabulous. I'm very thrilled to um, have had this opportunity to talk to you about it today, and I expect my book to be signed with an inscription to my favorite (laughs) co-host. You got it. This episode of Minding the Brain was edited by me, Mike Contos, and brought to you by the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences and the Faculty of Science at Carleton University, and made possible, in part, by Axons, the nerve fibers which transmit information to neurons, muscles, and glands, thus enabling all human activity, including podcasting. Theme music is plucked by Michael Terry. More episodes and show notes available at mindingthebrainpodcast.com. <laughs>